Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to your one-stop shop for horror news, true crime, and real-life tales of the unexplained. Monsters at Midnight, The Revenge. Episodes of Monsters upload on a bi-weekly format every other Tuesday. I'm your host, your favorite escaped madman, loose on the airwaves, terrorizing your eardrums, Matt Schaefer. Today we'll venture into the world of internet horror sensations and look at two recent examples of the reach they can have. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn out the lights. Monsters at Midnight, the motherfucking revenge rides again. Interesting episode here for you. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, two topics that have been in the news fairly recently. Um, one of them's a little bit older. I, I haven't gotten around to talk about it until now. Um, but in the last episode, we touched on the fact that Bloomhouse is producing a Five Nights at Freddy's film, and a week ago, the official teaser trailer dropped. 48 seconds long, and honestly, shows some promise. It uh, definitely it looks like they're putting some care and some money and some thought into it. The animatronics, for one, look good. I mean, they don't look amazing or super believable or anything. However, they do have... They they nailed the look of them. They look video game accurate. Uh, the whole trailer is uh, sort of set up with moments in the present along with a sort of uh, cutting to an instructional video seemingly from the 1980s uh, for the night shift guard position at the Fazbear Pizzeria, uh, which uh, Josh Hutcherson's character, Mike Schmidt, is going to be taking the role of in this film. Have a pretty good use of uh, Talking in Your Sleep by the Romantics in this, uh, which ties back uh, into the greater lore of the series. Um, <laughs> given the bite of 87 and everything like that, so... Uh, it, it, with Scott Cawthon uh, co-writing the script, there's definitely it looks like they're taking it seriously. We've got to look at uh, the other members of some other members of our cast, including uh, Matthew Lillard as William Afton, who, uh, uh, from what I understand, is the uh, was sort of the the uh, inception point, the creator of everything. Um. They also used the the uh, sort of music box uh, song from the first Five Nights at Freddy's game to pretty good effect in the trailer. Uh, it looks like, really realistically, what it comes down to is it looks like they're taking this a lot more seriously than I initially thought they were going to, which is pretty cool. Um, I'm still worried by the fact that it is coming out at the end of this year that just seems like such a fast turnaround but this trailer has some promise to it it looks like it's got that bloomhouse uh touch to it uh with the atmospheric lighting and everything like that and it looks like it has just enough of a budget but yeah no all the locations look pretty game accurate um i'm watching it right now actually um to sort of refresh myself. But yeah, it looks like we've 
Looks like there's a lot, a lot going on. Um, I'm curious uh, if this is going to answer any questions that longtime fans of the series have had about the lore, or if it is going to just raise new ones. Uh, if this is uh, canon or just like a fun side project, who knows? But I guess we will all find out... <laughs> relatively soon uh october 27th is when the film is going to be releasing uh in both theaters and on peacock um referencing the bite of 87 my boy markiplier is making a movie <laughs> uh if you are unfamiliar with uh Mark Fishbach, aka markiplier he's one of the most subscribed to youtubers like ever i believe he has like 38 million subscribers just an insane amount and i've been watching him for on and off for about 10 years now it's probably around 2012 or 2013 that i started watching him uh and to see him grow as a creator has been really inspiring and also really touching it's a uh, very very cool um, and whether he's pushing the boundaries with these sort of choose-your-own-adventure-style YouTube uh, movies that he's been doing, or uh, the project that I'm most fond of, uh, the Unis Anis experiment that he did with uh, Ethan Nestor, a uh, longtime friend and collaborator, it's been very inspiring and very cool to watch him grow as a content creator. However, at the core of it all, uh, is his fame or infamy, depending how you look at it, as a let's player, specifically for horror video video games, playing them horror video games with Markiplier. Uh, but one of the most recent independent uh, horror film, uh, or excuse me, horror game sensations has been a game called Iron Lung, uh, created by. David Zemanski, I believe is how you pronounce it, who is sort of an independent game powerhouse at this point. Uh, he created the boomer shooter Throwback Dusk, which I am a huge, huge fan of. I've not played Iron Long. I watched Markiplier's Let's Play of it. Um, again, there's a lot of interesting things uh, lore-wise, behind the scenes, about this uh, post-apocalyptic future where prisoners are essentially sent in these uh, one-man submarines to explore distant planets and whatever horrors they may uh, they may uh, uh, contain. Uh, and Markiplier, uh, about a month ago now probably, just... Well, I mean, it was probably uh, at the beginning of April he announced that he was making a movie. And his channel sort of went on hiatus as he was filming this movie. And then with uh just out of the blue he dropped a teaser trailer for a film adaptation of this video game iron lung uh a short short little teaser trailer that's pretty cool contextually or conceptually that uh sees you moving through the environment of the video game like rendered in the video game itself and then changing slowly into a live action interpretation of the location in the video game. Uh, the premise of the film set in a post-apocalyptic future where an 
event known as the Quiet Rapture caused all known stars and ha habitable planets in the universe to disappear, a convict is sent to search an ocean of blood discovered on a desolate moon using a midget submarine nicknamed the Iron Lung. And that sounds pretty game accurate. That's honestly pretty much the whole premise of the video game, too. Uh, Mark is, uh, directing and, uh, writing it, or wrote and directed it, and also starring in it, and Wikipedia is telling me that Sean McLaughlin also is apparently going to be appearing in it in some sort of capacity. Another good friend and, uh, YouTube, uh, content creator, better known as Jacksepticeye. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, I'm genuinely very curious about it. Uh, the video game Iron Lung, there's some Easter eggs and lore bits that it looks like you can discover depending on uh, multiple playthroughs and how much you explore this ocean of blood. Um, but it's really just like an hour-long experience. Uh, it's an interesting it's going. I feel it's going to prove to be an interesting experiment and a challenge to see what, um, to see what Mark can do to turn this into an engaging feature-length film, which uh, he uh, has stated that is near completion. Uh, it's in the editing process now, and he does uh, plan to get it in theaters in some sort of capacity, which, at this point, Markiplier probably can just do about anything that he fucking wants, <laughs> which is super cool. Um, but yeah, genuinely curious about this one. Uh, it says the release date is planned for 2023. Also, music by Andrew Hulshalt, another powerhouse in the indie video game community. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, very interested in this one. Uh, th I think there's a lot of potential uh, to expand the narrative, but also I think there is the risk of going too far or uh, demystifying some of the cooler ideas Iron Lung has. I know that he worked uh, pretty closely with David to uh, David Zemanski to make sure that it was true to the video game that he created. So... Yeah, genuinely curious about this one. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm happy for my boy Mark. Uh, I uh, it's been like I said, inspiring and super cool to see just how he has uh, kept up and uh, pushed himself over this past decade that I've been watching him. Um, and if you're a fan of Markiplier, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on this Iron Lung film. You can shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook or send us an email at monsters.midnight at gmail.com. So it looks like we're in the middle of this zeitgeist for internet horror, or at least horror sensations on the internet, branching into other more mainstream media. We saw it at the beginning of this year with uh, Skinamarink. Check out my uh, Skinamarink episode if you want to know my thoughts on that. Uh, definitely, it, it seems that the world has changed from all eyes being on Hollywood to all eyes being online, which uh, it's, it's been a long time coming. It's just this has been like 
like this year and um some of last year too were like the first moments where i truly noticed that yeah like the tides have changed and uh a lot of people are emulating what is popular online especially when it comes to things like uh the independent video game uh community or uh stuff like analog horror as well Analog horror is a very interesting movement in internet horror, which is sort of recontextualizing the concept of um, found footage into these bite-sized short horror films that are just in inspired by the idea of analog technology um utilizing things like everything from old like infomercials and psas to uh training videos and propaganda and vhs technology in general lo-fi is in right now and there's a lot of great examples of it online um, I finally watched all of the Mandela catalog, which is super fascinating, and also just a testament to how creative people can be, and it, 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 again, it was a cool thing to sort of get into, and it's also cool to see these uh, online content creators with really fresh, uh, interesting, and scary ideas. The Mandela, Mandela, blah, blah, blah. the Mandela catalog, it can be genuinely unnerving and frightening. And there, there's also a lot of good breakdown videos about what it all means. Uh, I, I would recommend checking out the Mandela catalog, but then maybe check out Wendigoon's video on his theories about everything. It sounds like he's pretty much correct because he's, uh, friends with the uh, creator of the uh, um, series who has confirmed a lot of the things that he's theorized. And I'm going to sort of take my stab at analyzing an, an analog horror series today that I actually again discovered through Wendigoon, but he had to stop uh, midway through because it was a little too uh, much for him. Wendigoon is a good uh, southern Christian boy, and but he he submits himself to a lot of uh, disturbing content, but this pushed all the wrong buttons for him, which I get, which we'll go into. Give me covering the channel Urban Spook, who at the moment only has six videos on their channel, but they're all a part of this same series. Uh, they're all titled Analog Horror, and then the title of that episode. Why am I deciding to cover Urban Spook? Um, because here's the thing. I don't necessarily think that this is a very good series. Um, I think this guy has a lot of good ideas. This is sort of like the Too Long Dan Listen version. I think whoever is behind Urban Spook has a lot of good ideas, but needs to rein them in and... Uh, workshop them a little bit so why am i covering this series when i could be discussing something more prominent like the mandela catalog or the walton files or something like that the main reason is those series have been covered to death and by people who are way smarter and way better at theory crafting than i am um and 
and I looked online, and at least on YouTube, this one doesn't have, as of right now, this one does not have nearly as many videos discussing the channel. Uh, so that's the first reason, because um, I kind of want to uh, dig up something that maybe not a whole lot of people have heard of. The second reason is I think this will be an interesting experiment on discussing what can work super well about the analog horror series or genre and what are some pitfalls that uh, you would want to avoid if this were something you were interested in creating or um, what basically sort of analyze what does and doesn't work about this genre because I think this uh, series is interesting in the fact that it has really good ideas and some not so good ones and kind of encapsulates everything every opinion that the internet has about analog horror you can sort of distill from this series so without further ado I am going to uh, break down in nauseating detail and i do literally mean nauseating i'm gonna put up sort i don't normally do this but i am gonna sort of put up a blanket trigger warning um not only because this series is extremely graphic but a lot of it is sort of dealing with more taboo subjects than you typically see and, or at least that I've typically seen in urban horror film, oh, excuse me, analog horror stories. Um, if this piques your interest at all, I'm also going to sort of, I'm going to go into nauseating detail, but I'm also going to keep some of this vague because if this intrigues you, I do encourage them to encourage you to check them out. Um, I do think I do support small time creators. And like I said, I think this guy has a lot of good ideas. I just think they could be reined in and refined and maybe give it <laughs> just practiced with a little bit more taste. But let's start off with episode one titled Faces. Police find three paintings based off three recent murders. The first one pertaining to Carla Gray, who suffered 36 stab wounds to the face, teeth removed, and the painting is titled Carla's Teeth. The second victim being Jackie Graham, who was drowned with 27 stab wounds to her perineum. The painting was titled Floating Jackie. And the third painting, uh, depicting victim James Miller, the, uh, the victim had his face torn off and his wrists slit open, and analysis believe that James lived for several days without his face. The painting is titled James, James's Secret Face. So these paintings are the hook for this series. And to their credit, they are super well done. They are unnerving and disturbing, and the best part of what you can do with analog horror is you can be more suggestive. You can leave a lot open to interpretation. And these paintings are really good at doing that. They are so they are nightmarish representations of these horrible murders that then make your brain think fuck I wonder what this person actually looks like after all this has happened to them. But this leads to my next issue. 
right off the right off the gate, this series is way more graphic than a lot of analog horror that I have seen. And it's just like a punch to the gut with how unapologetically graphic it is. So you can't have it both ways. You can't be coy and uh, creepy and suggest these horrible... Because here's the thing. It's like if, the, if they just showed these paintings and the, ti and the titles, you would already sort of be able to insinuate what happened to these people. But this series also then makes it known that a poor woman was stabbed 27 times in the taint, which I don't know how that's even possible, but it, it, it's really shocking. It's a lot. And it's right from the jump. And that's sort of going to set the tone for the rest of the series. Two months later, several more paintings are found. However, they are not appear... Excuse me. However, they do not appear to be uh, connected to any active cases. They are titled Wax Doll Tom, Lisa's Secret Face, Hanging Jimmy, Fuck Toy Cory, Daniel After the Fire, Jennifer's Last Stare, and Scream Maggie Scream. This is a part that I really like about this series, is we have a mystery right from the gate. Who are these people, and what do they do? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, who are who are these people? And you realize that will sort of unravel where they all ended up through the course of the series. It's a good hook, and the paintings again really sell it. Police receive three photos in the mail after going public with the cases and paintings in hopes of finding the killer slash saving potential victims. They are the photos of James Miller, Jackie Graham, and Jimmy, who we have not heard of yet, or at least police have not found yet, but he is one of the paintings that they received, Hanging Jimmy. Uh, towards the end of this video, a phone number is given in the typical analog horror style of if you know anything about the disappearances or the killer, call this number. To do my due diligence, uh, as a lot of these uh, analog horrors have a lot of Easter eggs and rabbit holes you can go down, I did call the number. It's disconnected. It's nothing. Uh, the police then f receive a final painting, uh, or at least they discovered it, rather, two days ago, titled Self-Portrait which is a hellish, uh, red face, feminine in figure. So there's our hook. We have our unknown killer in the self-portrait, and we have a list of people that horrible things have either happened to or are going to happen to. It's an interesting first episode. It has a lot of hook. Again, I love the idea of the paintings, and I love the idea of the mystery, but again, it is so unapologetically gruesome and shocking that it, again, can't go both ways between being suggestive with these paintings and shocking with these uh, very elaborate and detailed, almost like mortician or autopsy reports on what happened to these people. I will say, though, another thing, though, is the pacing of these videos are all great. I'm s sort of just reading it all out there 
and the effect is not going to be the same. Uh, watching these videos, the pacing is very deliberate and adds to the tension of when the next painting reveal is going to be. I will also add that it appears that this guy composes his own music and uh, ambient tracks for these videos. He has a SoundCloud linked in the uh, channel description, and it's really fucking good. It's really tense, it's really creepy, a little industrial, a little synthy. Honestly, kind of reminds me of the Manhunt video game soundtracks. Good work there. They really elevate everything. That and the deliberate pacing of how this information is gradually revealed is what's drawing me in the most about this first episode. Episode 2 is titled the lighthouse police officer bill collins and his two daughters went missing four weeks ago after discovering the self-portrait painting in his house clueless to how it got there police searched his house to find bill's two-year-old daughter angel hanging by the neck in the attic again boom right to the throat two oh i wrote two-year-old daughter that's incorrect it's two-month-old daughter it's fucking yeah Bad news. And again, like a kick to the throat. Why are we going this gross, like, right out the gate? There's no buildup. There's no nothing. The Collins family car was found 12 days later by the ocean. Inside it, a painting titled Long-Necked Angel. Which, again, very evocative. If we just found the painting without the gruesome autopsy, autopsy, excuse me, autopsy-like report, that would insinuate so much more and be more horrifying on its own. The search leads to an old lighthouse a few miles down the beach. It hasn't been used in several years. An abstract face was painted in red on the lighthouse door. Inside, the charred corpse of a missing teenager named Daniel, as in Daniel after the fire, was found, along with the corpses of Jennifer and Lisa White, who had been missing for several months. Seven months, excuse me. Which also brings us to Jennifer's last stare and Lisa's secret face. A barrel contain containing mangled bones and meat was found. Tests proved it to be the remains of the other Collins family members, along with extreme levels of amphetamine. Photos of the family's final moments lay scattered around the barrel, along with one photo containing the image of an unknown face, although it does bear striking resemblance to the face seen in the self-portrait uh, painting. Again, this is where the series is sort of teetering back and forth. We'll probably You'll probably be teetering back and forth over where, whether or not you want to continue it, because... This is sort of when it cements that the brutality of everything is really going to be the selling point, which in itself, not necessarily bad. It just doesn't have any sort of balance between suspense and pure brutality. And it doesn't know how to, like I said, doesn't know how to balance those two ideas, although it seems to want to have it both ways. Um, we come out the gate knowing that a two-month-year-old was hanged and then we see a painting represented, representing the baby's corpse. Had it been the inverse, while it would still be shocking and gross, 
it would at least be warranted because if we had found the painting first of long-necked angel you would be your mind would be wondering and doing the work for you and getting you more scared for the eventual reveal that being said we've got <laughs> we've got four more episodes to go through episode three in the walls Ten days ago, the Beck twins, Corey and Margaret, went missing. It makes a point of mentioning that Corey and Margaret are 11 years old. And these pertain to the paintings Scream Maggie Scream and Fuck Toy Corey. I'm going to spare the gruesome details. Um, it's not even, like, explicitly bad. It's just the implications of these two young children and the descriptions of what happened to them makes me queasy and i it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily something i want to go get into on my stupid little podcast again if you want to check this all out it's obviously free on youtube one week before the disappearance Corey was dared to enter an old cabin in the woods emerging after four minutes with bruises on his arm, screaming that he saw a face. Investigations found a secret crawl space in the cabin along with Corey's camera, the same image of our killer on one of the photos. And again, this is sort of when I realized, like, okay, so he's just, he's not, he doesn't know how to balance this shit. He comes out, it's almost like because... <laughs> it honestly comes down to the fact that people's attention spans are so fucking short these days that if you don't have them by the balls in the first 10 seconds of your video, they're going to tune out. So it seems like he's deliberately front-loading all the gruesome, horrible shit in the first half of the video. And then the more interesting, subtle, and to me scarier stuff in the back half... And maybe that's why, or maybe this guy just really doesn't know how he needs to, like, balance this. Episode 4 is titled, The Clue. Private investigator Sean Kane had been aided, aiding the police's investigations of the missing persons. The last body he found before his own disappearance being that of Tom Harris, Waxdall Tom, from the first video. The killer had broken into Tom's apartment and submerged him in a pile of candle wax in the living room. Horrifying concept. Tom Horrifying concept on its own, but wait, it's urban spook, there's more. Tom died of suffocating from the, wa from the wax, with his arms and eyelids cut off. A third arm being found in the wax, and, and as of this video, we don't know who this belongs to. <laughs> It's like, it's like, Jesus, suffocating, being submerged in candle wax isn't gross enough. Let's horribly maim him and stick someone else's arm in there for good, re for, for good measure. One week later, Sean went missing as neighbors called the police after hearing his dog bar barking for hours. And this is another one that I'm going to spare you the details on. The dog is, let's say, fine, but animal cruelty and no one likes it when the animal gets hurt in the horror movies so I'm, I'm not trying to ruin everyone's day that much 
Again, if you're that curious, very easy to just watch this series. There's six episodes long. It only amounts to about 30 minutes, probably. Probably even shorter than that. The longest episode in that is the final episode, and it's like five minutes long. Uh, the only clue police could find was the number two painted on the wall in Sean's blood, seemingly painted by him. A painting was found titled The Man in the Pipes, bearing the resemblance to Sean. Surveillance cameras around Sean's home caught another photo of the perpetrator, which matches all the others we've seen so far. This feminine uh, figure. So, this is the other problem I have with this. Is like, we don't know enough, and that's... It's a double-edged sword. We don't know anything about this killer other than the way she looks. We don't know if she's supernatural. We don't know if she's just this horribly, miserably fucked up human being. We don't know anything about it. And there's something scary to that in itself. But every episode sort of ends with this stinger of, this is the killer. Um, actually, you know, I come to think of it, in the last episode, it sort of suggested that it's probably something supernatural. Um, I don't know, and that always, and that alone to me just kind of feels like a cop-out. I'm so sick. So many of these analog horror stories, it has to be some sort of possession or haunting, and I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so tired of it, like, even if it's something like, that starts grounded in reality, like the tragedy of the Walton Files, and then it's like, oh, but uh, the souls of the victims might be possessing these animatronics, and that goes back to Five Nights at Freddy's, too. It's like, I'm, I'm just so sick of it. <laughs> just come up with a cool serial killer story. I'm so sick of ghosts and goblins and shit like that. But, I don't know, everyone's scared by different things. It's all subjective. Who cares? Maybe, I don't know. That, that, that was sort of a tangent for the sake of a tangent. I'm just really sick of that. Episode 5 is titled The Witness. Three days ago, Tina Rosenberg, along with her boyfriend Jack Stryker and sister Flora, were reported missing. Two days ago, Jack's car was found in the woods with, a signs, uh, with signs of a struggle inside, along with a painting, flor Flower fl Face Flora. That's fucking hard to say. Screaming was heard in the woods, and the mutilated Tina was found alive along with the maimed corpse of Flora. I'm painting broad strokes now because as it's, I watched this whole series just straight earlier in the week. And then I rewatched it before recording this episode to take notes. And I kind of just started skimming through everything. And I also, to the series credit, I watched it without the sound on because the music is genuinely the part that makes me the most uncomfortable to the point where the piece of music in episode six is borderline unbearable for how tense and uh, raw and disturbing it is. But I was also just getting so sick of the gratuitous violence, and I'm all for gratuitous violence, usually, but just the squandered potential of this series was making me kind of just skim through it all, and as a result, I'm painting more broad strokes here. Um, and it's also it's just bumming me out. 
Returning to the car, the police found a new painting titled Long Jack. Jack has still not been found. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. This is a genuinely creepy moment because we don't get the description of what happened to Jack. Uh, we get a painting titled Long Jack. What is that? And the painting itself is so evocative. It's like, what does it mean? What did he do? What happened to him? There's not like a fucking another like screen that's like, yeah, Jack's penis was found stretched across three yards and then tied around his neck and hung himself with it. It's like, sorry, I just fucking almost like swallowed the mic. Talking about long penises got me all worked up. <laughs> It's just like this that it's such a good concept that he's wasting. And I also just like we're at the point now where like we've sort of gone through except for hanging Jimmy, which is very telling that Jimmy I feel like at some point will have a bigger uh if this series continues, will have some sort of relevance in this series. Um the last latest episode only came out a handful of weeks ago so I it seems like it should be continuing but we're we're through all the paintings that were discovered in the first episode so now we're just introducing new things but not quite as gracefully or as interestingly as the first episode um and it this all culminates in episode 6 which is titled Pigs and I'm honestly, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not going to like describe anything about this episode. Um, this is the hardest episode to sit through because it is just so graphic, um, and also the music is just is too scary. The music's too scary, um, but it's so just unnecessarily graphic. And at this point, it's not even like trying to like. Be evocative or coy or like bury the lead at all it's just like no cards on the table we're gonna be talking about like potential necrophilia and child abuse and animal abuse and all this other shit that i'm just going to spare it all what have we learned <laughs> probably not much what have we learned uh these ideas for analog horror especially need to be handled very delicately because what works so well about things like the Walton Files and the Mandela Catalog is the power of suggestion. The power of of using murky lo-fi technology to evoke responses um, in you that, like... I'm trying to think where I'm going. It, the, the whole point of it is to, like, use lo-fi technology to be evocative. Um, to paint images of more like concepts than actual like 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 fucking line by line descriptions of just acts of atrocity this series is i still think full of very good ideas it just does not balance them in any sort of meaningful way and errs on the side of exploitation exploitation and shocking just for the sake of being shocking and that may work for you. It's not necessarily my thing, especially when it comes to analog horror, because there are so many better, more subtle, and more intense and terrifying uh, examples 
of this. Was I creeped out by this series? I mean, yeah, but, like, if you just read, like, pages of what Jeffrey Dahmer did to his victims, you're assen that's essentially what you're doing watching this series. I don't know. That's just my take on it. If you watch the series, let me know what you think about it. Um, and that's going to do it for this episode. If you have thoughts on anything I discussed today, please shoot us an email at monsters.midnight, spelled incorrectly, at gmail.com, or shoot us a DM at, on Facebook or on Instagram. I'm also on Letterboxd, letterboxd.com slash Flamingo. I try to write about every movie I watch, uh, so if you want my thoughts on non-horror-related things, you can follow me over there. Until next time, my tender lumplings, it's in your walls. Yeah.